This is Mind Bites, a series for Philosophy Bites with me, David Edmonds. And me, Nigel Warburton. How does the mind represent the world? Should we see the mind as somehow mapping the world? For example, if I want to take a familiar path from home to the supermarket, does my mind contain something like a chart of this route? Is that how I'm able to navigate my way around? On the face of it, that seems pretty plausible. But it raises a further question. Doesn't a map require a map reader? And if so, would we then have to hypothesise a sort of tiny person, a homunculus, who's lodged in our minds and who interprets the maps? Here's Peter Godfrey-Smith. Peter Godfrey-Smith, welcome to Mind Bites. Pleasure to be here. The topic we're going to focus on is mental representations. Can we just begin by getting clear what a representation is? Well, the natural way to start is by thinking about the most familiar cases of external public representations, things like maps, which I think are a good paradigm here. If you follow that road, then it seems that a representation is something that stands for something else, something that can be interpreted as saying how some other thing is and can hence be a guide to dealing with the other thing. That's interesting. So I've got a a map of London. It pictures, to some degree, the layout of the streets, and it allows me to move through those streets. Right. I think those are the cases that are both very familiar to us and also quite helpful for getting us a way in to start thinking about the mental case. Setting aside the particular features of maps for a moment, one way of motivating the idea of mental representation is to think that here we are with these organisms that are limited, self-contained things, and we deal with a much larger world. We somehow navigate from one place to another. We behave effectively in response to all sorts of things that happen. And one way of trying to give a first general sketch of how we do this is in terms of the idea of mental representation. We deal with the world by having some something inside us that we can use as a guide to the external things that we have to deal with. And this way of thinking about the mind has quite a long history. It does. I mean, there's a sense in which views of this kind go certainly back as far as people like Aristotle. The idea that the mind can take on the form of an object that the person is dealing with. It's a very old idea. People sometimes talk about mental representation specifically as an enlightenment idea, but I don't think that's true. It's it's an idea that's run through a very large fraction of the history of philosophy and has taken many forms. Particularly interesting is the classical empiricist period, people like Hume especially, where in many ways they were thinking about the contents of the mind, the things in the mind, ideas and impressions, that was Hume's terminology, in representational terms. They were like little pictures, like little images. And a kind of attention within that empiricist picture came from the fact that when someone like Hume gave an account of how these image-like or picture-like things interacted with each other, how they did things within the mind that comprised thought. The picture he had, or the view he had, was one in which it was a kind of a quasi-physics, really, through which one idea interacted with another. He was very impressed by the example of Newton and thought that a principle of attraction governed the internal workings of the mind. And there's really a kind of tension between thinking of ideas in representational terms and thinking of how one idea relates to another in this sort of quasi-mechanistic, semi-Newtonian way. Just to get that clear, the tension lies between the description of the mind as something which pictures the world 
and the view of the impressionist philosopher David Hume that these pictures have themselves principles of association, ways in which they combine, and those two things don't necessarily have to go together. You could have a view that the mind somehow represents the world to itself without buying into this, as you put it, quasi-physics of attraction. Right. So one way to put the point would be to return to the cases that we're all familiar with, things like maps and external representations. So a map can't do anything in ordinary everyday life without a reader, an intelligent reader. There has to be some agent or agent-like thing present that knows how to read the map and knows how to interpret the various marks on it. Now, one way of looking at some of the earlier image-based representationalist views of the mind is to say, well, they they were convinced that there were little picture-like things in there, but they didn't really have the beginning of an idea of how the right kind of interpretation can take place, such that the picture could be used as a guide to something else. And that's often led to the criticism that their views implied a homunculus and a little person as viewer of those pictures in the head. That's right. So certainly by the early to mid-20th century, that idea was seen as a kind of an acute problem with the representationalist view of the mind. The idea that it might be tempting to posit an internal map or an internal picture or internal sentences, but to say something like that, it's pointless unless you can say something about how there could also be, within the mind, something that could read or interpret or make use of the representation. And then the problem appears that you seem to be introducing something just as intelligent as the agent whose behavior you're trying to explain. So you've just relocated the intelligence that was the thing to be explained in the first place. So certainly by the mid-20th century, the idea that there was something really conceptually flawed in a representation-based account of how we deal with the world was quite a popular idea. And the behaviourists were particularly critical of this representationalist model of the mind. That's right, and there are two strands to the history at, at that point. One is on the scientific side. A bit earlier I talked about the classic associationist view of the mind, people like Hume and after him John Stuart Mill, who thought in terms of a sort of quasi-mechanics by which ideas interact with each other. Now, that idea was one of the things feeding into the development of behaviorism as a view in psychology. But behaviorists quite quickly rejected the idea that there was a a sort of internal dynamics and began to take more seriously the idea of the mind as a biological entity. Brains are parts of living things. They're made of cells. And the ways in which things interact in the brain need not map in some simple way onto the way that physical objects like billiard balls might interact with each other. So the idea of a brain as an organ for adaptation to the world became increasingly important from essentially the beginning of the 20th century or late 19th century onward. Darwin had quite an important effect on thinking about the mind in this way. And early psychological behaviorists thought it was possible to give a theory of the mind's adaptation to the world that avoided all sorts of crazy superstitious notions, including representation. And here the goal was to be more scientific, more biological about the mind. On the philosophical side, you have ideas that are not disconnected from those scientific ideas, but really have a life of their own, not so much driven by 
thinking about the mind or the brain as a biological organ, but just thinking about really the errors and the fallacies that arise when you apply a representation-based view to the question of how the mind works as a philosopher. So by the mid-20th century, I mean, Gilbert Ryle would be a very good example here of someone who thought that if you succumb to the temptation to explain the way the mind works in terms of internal representation, you wind up giving pseudo-explanations, things that look like explanations, but things that really give you no real purchase on how people are able to do what they do. So by the mid-20th century, especially in Britain, the idea that there was something really wrong with a representationalist view of the mind was quite influential. I would say it was the received opinion, really, wasn't it? It would be very hard to be a representationalist in the 1940s and 50s. Right. I think it would have been hard. There's a standard way of telling the story as it goes forward from there, in which the rise of computers and artificial intelligence provides a bridge to the next set of ideas. Myself, I like to put some emphasis on some developments on the psychological side, which eventually began to filter through to philosophy. I'm thinking in particular of the work of E.C. Tolman, who was an American psychologist, working within a behaviorist tradition, at least initially. And Tolman was looking at ways that animals like rats learn to deal with their environment through learning to associate one thing with another. And he wrote a a famous paper in 1948, so this is the heyday of the anti-representationalist movement. He wrote a paper with the provocative title, Cognitive Maps in Rats and Men. And the argument in there was quite simple. Tolman argued that even though it seems quite an odd idea initially to think that an animal like a rat has a little map inside its head, he thought something like that just has to be true, given the way that rats are able to behave. What was his evidence for that? I mean, you can't dissect a rat and find the map in the head. Not then. Essentially, behaviours such as shortcut behaviours, and I think of those as very significant here. So suppose you have a view of an animal in which you know all it's doing is it's learning behaviours that succeed in getting at certain rewards and avoiding punishments and things like that. But then the rat shows you that it's taken information in somehow that enables it to do something quite novel to deal with a situation, something it's never been explicitly trained to do and which functions as a kind of shortcut. You know, it's learned to do a couple of things, but it can somehow put the information together and work out, oh, in this situation, I can actually do this other thing, which is more effective. Tolman thought that he'd been able to show a variety of phenomena in which animals use something like shortcuts. That's a general term for a range of phenomena here. But what he took to be really important was the idea that the animals were dealing with the world in a way that cannot be readily explained just by the idea that they've taken in some behavioural routines and things like that. So something more than conditioned reflexes had to be going on here. And so the least implausible explanation is going to be that there is a map in the head. That's right. I'm quite curious about what Tolman thought about the criticism that would have come from the philosophers. It's right around the time of Gilbert Ryle when philosophers were used to the idea that, look, it just shows a kind of naivety to explain successful behavior in terms of internal representation because we know that that leads to all sorts of problems. And Tolman was essentially saying, well, perhaps it doesn't make any sense, but it's, it seems to be true anyway. So what happened subsequently? 
Well, some decades later, neuroscientists towards the end of the 1970s began to show some empirical evidence that something like what Tolman said was going on was in fact going on. So in the case of the rat, the hippocampus was the part of the rat brain that was taken to contain something like internal maps of parts of the environment it had been dealing with. Well, even if we accept that hypothesis that rats, and presumably also humans, I don't know, have internal maps that allow them to navigate in particular ways, you still seem to be stuck with the problem that the map needs a reader, the homunculus problem. Right, there is a problem there. At this point, I think it's helpful to switch tracks on the historical story a little bit and now think about the history of computers, not the aspect of the history of computers that people usually emphasise here. So I think that one way of looking at the fundamental account of an abstract computing device given by Alan Turing was one in which a fundamental role is played by a sequence of writing and then reading So in a Turing machine, you have a processing device and you have a tape, and it's possible to both write symbols or marks of some kind onto the tape and also to read them back and to condition what you do on what the processor sees when it reads. Now, the language I'm using here is somewhat anthropomorphic language. I just talked about the processor seeing something on the tape. And this is obviously a wholly mechanical device. You can build these things. We do build things that do this job all the time without having a little homunculus inside there. And part of the message, I think, of the fundamental insight that Turing has is that very simple things can engage in cycles of writing and reading in a way that is sufficient to get the whole story going about how representation is possible. So Tolman around the 40s was talking about the behavioural evidence that animals are building maps of some sort. He didn't have any idea of how this was being done. Turing, a bit earlier, was doing the work that gave us our fundamental understanding of how a computing device can produce intelligent behaviour. And from that time onwards, the lines of evidence start to knit together So one way to put the message of this is to say there can be much simpler things in the head that are good enough as mechanistic realisations of a writing and reading cycle. The idea of simple writers and simple readers was an idea that was vindicated by early work on computer technology. So this gets around the homunculus problem in the sense that the homunculus isn't an intelligent thing sitting there, it's a, a reader device which is effectively mechanical in the Turing case. That's right. And I think that one of the things that philosophers have sometimes gotten wrong in recent discussions is to think that in order for there to be something in the head that genuinely functions as a representation, there has to be a reader device which is really quite smart, really quite sophisticated and intelligent, So the idea of relatively low-level mechanical reader devices has not always, I think, been appreciated for the significance that it has. Would it be fair, then, to say that the pendulum has now swung back, that after a period when it was considered completely naive to give an account of the mind as representing the world and mapping the world, that now, in the light of computer science and neuroscience, that's quite a plausible position to hold? 
It is. I think in some ways, for a time at least, the pendulum swung too far back the other way. So there was a period around the end of the 20th century, especially in the 1970s and 80s, when people thought that computers were going to give us the key to understanding how the mind works, and also that this was a complete vindication of the representationalist view. So Jerry Fodor, in both philosophy and psychology, was influential in this area. He thought that the only way we can think that the brain could possibly work is as a kind of a computer, and computer is inherently a representation-based or representation-using process. And I think that the way things are looking now, that is a case of the pendulum going too far back the other way. I think it's not right that all computational processes use representations, but also I think more fundamentally, the idea that the particular kind of technology we're used to from the computers around us, the idea that that provides a model for everything, I think that idea is fading. And people are coming to appreciate the fact that a computer is a particular kind of device, it's a technology that is constructed in an engineering tradition for certain purposes, out of particular kinds of material to do certain kinds of things in reliable and useful ways. And a brain is just a different kind of thing. It's a thing that evolved from different sorts of materials as a response to different kinds of problems and a different kind of context. And the idea that the computer technology is a model for everything in our heads, I think, is beginning to fade. There's a tendency for each historical period to seize on the technology of its time, the impressive central technology, and see it as providing the key to understanding the peculiar things within our skulls. So in the 17th century, the ideas of clockwork and physical processes of that, of that kind were made central. So it's in some ways to be expected that computers would take on a similar role now. And I think that the right picture to have is one in which, through the work of people like Turing and people after him, we have come to understand the importance of particularly architectures involving memory, writing things to memory, retrieving things from memory, and the things that that kind of process can make possible. But we've also come to appreciate that uh, computers, again, are a particular kind of realisation of this process, and we shouldn't expect our brains to be just like them. Peter Crawford-Smith, thank you very much. A pleasure. MindBytes was made in association with the Meaning for the Brain and Meaning for the Person project, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. For further information about the project, go to www.nicholasshea.co.uk. That's Shea, S-H-E-A. For more Philosophy Bites and how to support us, please go to www.philosophybites.com. <laughs>